Hi, I'm Catherine Switzer, and I am a very old crazy runner. Welcome to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I'm the craziest of crazy runners, Fundy, and I've got my cousin Nicholas, the oldest of the crazy runners. Oh man, and am I feeling old today. You're going to want to stick around today when we talk with Boston Marathon great and 261 Fearless founder, Catherine Switzer. But be sure to stop right now, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends because we know you have some old crazy friends out there. Looking at the number of people on our Strava feed that went out and ran marathons this past weekend, it was a big weekend for marathons. I don't know if you saw all the posts, but there are a lot of old crazy runners. And if you want to be a part of that community, jump onto Strava, search for the old crazy runners podcast. That's where you're going to find us. Join in. It's a great club. And speaking of marathons and half marathons, we had the Portland Marathon and Half Marathon Weekend, and uh, it was eventful. It was eventful, not in all the ways hopeful. Um, Nothing like, you you went through this last year. You spend all these weeks training and training, and you're all excited, and then at the last second, something fucks you. And... um, Well, I would like to say you got fucked even more because you had to run the damn thing and still get fucked. Woo-wee. Well, I double fucked myself because I went to a concert on Tuesday, which, by the way, was fantastic, and I knew I should have worn a mask. I knew I should not have been in that environment five days before a race and just risked it, but I did, and I went, and I got the vid. I (laughs) got uh, the fucking vid. The best thing is when... Uh, did you start uh, succumbing to symptoms of COVID? Well, if I'm being honest to everybody out there, it was <laughs> before the race that I just didn't want to accept. I, wa- I didn't want to <laughs> yeah, give but myself you the sure. excuse. I wasn't sure. But at what, at what mile marker were you 100% sure? 13. <laughs> mile, mile marker 13 coming up. Actually, it was before. Well, that was when I was for sure. So we're coming up Macadam. That's about mile 11. That's when I'm like, whoa, something just turned. Because yeah, I mean, we, right. were, we were smooth, felt good. And then we go over the Selwood Bridge and we get to about mile 13. And that's when I, I just told Scotty G, you got you to gotta go, man. I'm, I'm crashing. And yeah. it was a wheels off the rails crash. I just went, I was doing a mile run and a minute walk. And it got down by the time I was mile 22, 23. It was walk a block and, or walk several blocks and then try and run as far as I could before my calves cramped up on me. Whew. Didn't beat the four hour so, mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you went sub five. So that's I, good. By the way, I finished in the top 50%. That is amazing. <laughs> With the mid. <laughs> that's, you should get a prize for that. Oh, God damn, that sucked. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that sucked. So you, you know, Last year. So I'm, I'm just going to say, I think the Portland Marathon is jinxed. Also, I'm going to lobby hard. I love Portland. I love the Portland Marathon, but that is one hilly motherfucker. And I say we take a few years off of that and run some flats. 
I am 100% with you. So by the way, I've already prefaced that. I let my wife know that under no circumstances is this last failure going to be the last marathon I run. <laughs> I cannot end on that. That is not well, how it's going to go. To quote Scotty G, the record still stands. The record still stands. The, the and, local and, and, OCR record still stands. There's two sides to that. So for one, and, and I, I really do want to emphasize this because uh, the, the competitive nature between the two of us is, is, is one of the greatest things about our relationship. I absolutely love it. But the yeah. truth is, it's the four-hour mark that I want to beat. Oh, beating I want to beat the four-hour mark too. Yeah. I, I mean, being faster than you is, is great or not or whatever. But that's, that's, that's like a tangible line in the sand. It's the same thing like uh, I want to spend the next – Probably, I don't know what our next marathon looks like, but I, I really want to uh, work on getting into the 130s in my half marathon time. So my, my PR is a 146. I want to get that down. I want, I want to, I want to okay. shorten my races. Sub 140, yeah. You know? I was just glad. I, I would like to get down to 145 at least. Uh, and then um, I'm just going to throw this out there. Super flat marathon, Tokyo 2024. Maybe there's the one not quite. Across the sea, I would uh, love to. There is, yeah. So um, I'm torn between the fall marathons and training through the summer and the uh, springs. So summer, or if we want to do a fall one, the Vancouver-Washington one, which I think is like a week or two before the Portland, is flat as hell. You mean Vancouver, BC? Or not? No, Vancouver-Washington. They had a marathon just a couple of weeks ago? I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, that's it. Super small field, super flat. Okay. Uh, so it might be it might be a good one to do, or we do one of the run revel ones that are downhill. I'm not all that excited about running downhill. I don't. The hills weren't so much keeping them down to a minimum, but I mean running all downhill to me is just as excruciating as running all uphill. I I I, yeah. I don't mind having a little bit of variance, but that 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 one that one hill. Uh, as you come out of the Reed College area, that was just, it was straight up. Like, it was like, fuck you. I don't want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mile, mile nine for you, 22 for us. That, that's the motherfucker. Now, to your point about time of year, I think I'm going to have to lean towards the springtime. Uh, if for nothing else, uh, <laughs> I'm probably not going to make it through another marriage, make it through marriage <laughs> if I do another fall. Ball training regimen. Um, I, I do very strongly believe that if we just train year round, and I mean 20 to 25 miles a week, two to three, five milers during the week, 10 miler on the weekend, that sort of range. If we do that on a consistent basis, we can step into a marathon training plan and not have to get crushed. Uh, yes. And I do think that looking for like the Eugene time frame that may that's way more effective relationship wise <laughs> uh, i would as agree as far as as far as the training goes yeah. now so uh so it's 40 degrees and raining outside and you want to go run uh right now and i have no plans sure go ahead go right ahead go right yeah. ahead oh it's a beautiful sunday it's absolutely gorgeous on a mid-August, and uh, you want to go nap because you just ran? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, it, those two just don't that. So let's give some kudos. I, I I agree with you. The Portland Marathon is a much more of a motherfucker than people think. It's got some hills, but it's a great course. 
The new course uh, really is an exciting run. I love how they take you through all the neighborhoods. But let's talk about the most important thing of all. That fucking metal. Oh, yeah. It was, it's, it's beautiful. It's glorious. It is beautiful. Yeah, I'm disappointed that mine is silver and yours is gold. Because that just that says it all right there. Well, you get half as much. Yeah. You okay, I would much. like to comment on one thing. I've been doing a lot of rowing machine and weight training the last month, month and a half. Okay. And I felt strong. If it was a flat course, I definitely would have PR'd. Like I was just cruising along. So you, no, you, no problem at all. You, you definitely recognize the value of, of that overall body strength coming yeah. into these, these things. But that's interesting because that kind of segues uh, into an article that I read. Um, there was a study done recently, 100,000 older adults starting okay. way back. They went like 20 years and just did this cross comparison of those who self-reported as only doing aerobic and self-reported yeah. as doing both aerobic and weights. And there is a significant increase in life expectancy when you do both. Yeah. And I am going to stay on this you. soapbox as long as we have this podcast, because I have no doubt whatsoever the value for everybody in not just the length of your life, but the quality of your life by continuing to do what your body wants you to do. Work it. Yeah. Yep. And uh, also, I'm going to stay on this soapbox, like eating food that's good for you, you know, variety, you know, keeping the meat down. You don't have to be vegetarian, but everybody that lives past 100 doesn't eat a ton of meat. They're not eating meat twice a day, every day, you know? That's, uh, uh, that's going to be a habit. That's a hard, hard break for me, but I, I agree 100% with your point. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of, lot of leafy greens, lot, you know, just the good stuff. A lot of beans. Beans are great. You know, just uh, eating, eating healthy and, and the variety of physical activity. Variety is an excellent point there. It doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be regimented. It doesn't necessarily even have to be super hard work. Just something. Get out there. Move. Push yourself. And Uh, it shows. Yeah. Quick note on the speed. Um, If it wasn't hilly, I definitely would have PR'd, but those last couple of hills slowed me down. But one thing I did is, man, I lined up with the people that were running eight minute miles. Instead of lining up with, you know, my goal, I was, my goal is do like a 155. I lined up with the 150 people. Right. Or actually, no, I lined up ahead of the 150 people. So I was running with people that uh, were, were faster than me. And it, the point is, is really like, if you want to do something, go with that tribe. Like you've got to be in the group of people that are doing the thing that you want to do. And that's, what's going to get you there. Right. If you want to be out running marathons, you can't be hanging out with people that are doing 10 Ks not going to get you there oh that's an excellent point we did the same thing we actually started a little ahead of our anticipated pace um wanting to you know be in that group and i would uh also take a moment here the stride worked fantastic Uh, i think one thing about getting into a group that is a little bit beyond or above what you've been training the cautious there is that you, you you might come out too fast and you might not have the whole race in you yeah the Ability to know, I mean, I, I mean, I had my, my power line dialed in. And, I mean, if you look at the numbers for the first 13 miles, 
our splits were great and they were consistent and we were running right at nine minutes. My heart rate was in the 120s, 130s. I mean, everything was exactly what we were supposed to do. And I'm convinced, if not for having the COVID, that we would have continued on. And, and to, to bear that, to bear fruit with that, Scotty G ran a 405. Yeah. Great job, you know, Scotty G. Great job getting out there. His very first one uh, had to lose his running partner halfway through and his tracker. I mean, I'm really the one with the, the pod, so he's just kind of following my lead, and he had to just take off on his own and uh, crushed it. And in part because he ran that power, he knew he was paying attention to these metrics within himself and not not just thinking, oh, I've got it all in me right now. I'm going to push it all the way to the end, and then he crashes. But went out there and crushed it. So a uh, couple more uh, marathon news items. So this is just from Facebook. Uh, Dave Sweezy, at the age of 40, ran his first marathon ever. Um, did a, a 3.40. Great okay. time, three hours, 40 minutes. Um, but in his comment, he's like, some guy dressed in a Christmas tree costume beat him. I saw that. <laughs> but and, and I, yeah. thankfully... He beat the people dressed in Scooby-Doo and the Lion King. He passed those two, but he got beat by the Christmas tree. Uh, I would, I, I, he got passed by the Christmas tree. He got passed by the Christmas tree, but he, he overtook he may, Scooby-Doo and the Lion King. He may not have gotten beat by the Christmas tree. We don't know when that guy started. Oh, I think the Christmas tree beat him. He, he had a faster time as well. Yeah, I think so. I don't think he passed the Christmas tree and then the Christmas tree passed him. I think he was just like cruising along and then he's like, oh, fuck, a fucking Christmas tree just passed me. Here's here's what I have found with with the Christmas trees and the Scooby Doo's and the Doctor yep. Dribbles, um, which by the way is a, a a true thing. This guy dribbled two basketballs running a half marathon the entire time. Um, they they are fast motherfuckers. Y- yeah. you don't you don't go they to need, a marathon and think you know what you know what I need challenge. to do. <laughs> I need to put on a costume. It's just not hard enough. I need more weight. I need something that's going to contain my heat. Yep. I need a challenge. Uh, so, yeah, don't be surprised if they pass you. Speaking of challenge, we have another challenger. Moshe Lederfein, 68 years old. Yeah. Ran a five-hour and four-minute marathon, 11-minute pace, balancing a pineapple on his head. Oh, I saw that picture <laughs> as well. That's what I'm talking about. Balancing... A pineapple on your head. Yeah. All he's missing is the basketballs. <laughs> Just got a pineapple bounced on my head. You ran an entire marathon with a pineapple on your head. Yeah. Okay, so why? Why the I pineapple? Because he's most leader fine. <laughs> oh, I mean, I want to I be in that room when someone's like, well, dude, haven't you already crushed a marathon? I mean, what's the challenge here? And, and he's like, oh, that's a good point. I should uh, put a pineapple on my head. Yes. Yeah, and there must be something going on because this is he's run multiple marathons with pineapple on his head. So he must be going for some sort of record. I don't get it. I don't, I, I, <laughs> he probably he wants to be in Guinness. I'm sure he wants to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. I, I think that's his goal. Christmas trees, Scooby-Doo's, pineapples on your head. What other crazy marathon things happened. Well, that was basically it. Although I do encourage everybody to go online and Google Kipchoge's water bottle guy. 
because there are these videos of Kipchoge's water bottle guy handing the water bottle to him, and he is possibly the happiest, most excited person in the world every single time he hands off that water bottle. He's just, it's the pinnacle of excitement. Once you look at the water bottle guy, then look at Kipchoge's, Kipchoge's 5K splits or his yeah. world record-setting marathon. Sick how fast that guy is. Well, he's twice as fast. He's twice as fast as me and Scotty G right in the middle. So he's more than twice as fast, Scotty G. He's just under twice as. He's not quite twice as fast as me. Slacker. <laughs> Slacker. I mean, what world record holder shouldn't be twice as fast as me? I mean, that's just, that should be everybody. I hope everybody out there is definitely picking up on this marathon vibe. Obviously, it's uh, something that we've certainly embraced. There was a lot going on this past weekend. And it's important to kind of look back and think where we've come with this marathon race in a fairly short amount of time. And for some perspective, it wasn't until we did this podcast that I was educated that women weren't even allowed to run the Olympic marathon until 1984, which is insane. And they weren't even allowed to run in marathons until the late 60s, early 70s. Well, and the doctors were afraid that their uteruses were going to fall out as if that's a thing that could happen. And now we see a running community that is a majority of women. And there's no reason to doubt the capacity for them to go out there and perform as well and better than anybody else. And one of the leaders in getting that movement started was Catherine Switzer. So Catherine Switzer, not only is she still running marathons in her 70s, but she was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon, almost got pushed off the course. You're going to love this conversation. Let's get to it. And today, our very special guest is Catherine Switzer. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a little starstruck to have you on here. I uh, made sure to do some extra homework because I wanted to uh, come prepared. Honestly, you guys, uh, I'm just an old runner like you are. As I've been telling everybody, uh, you are the most famous uh, female American runner uh, living today. Oh, I don't know if I would say that. I mean, well, in jo- my mind, Joan, <laughs> uh, Joan Benoit Samuelson. Uh, I, I think I'm in pretty heavy company, darling. <laughs> you, you are. But, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the big strides that you made early on, uh, a lot of the other female runners uh, would have had a tougher time to get up and running. Literally. I hope I did make some change and, and, and I'm sure I did. And, but I, I think the message I'd like to get across today is that we all have opportunities to make change. I mean, we're surrounded by social injustice for one thing. So, I mean, we can start there, but in, the, in terms of running, um, there was an awful lot to do. There's still an awful lot to do. And I think we all can contribute. So um, I'm hoping that we can kind of get motivated and excited about you know, the potential here. Well, that's what I'm most excited about having you on here is the change that we can all be a part of on so many levels for so many people to bring uh, equality, not only in the running community, but I feel like the running community is kind of a nexus to bring about change in the greater sphere. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. I've always felt that way. And in fact, I've talked about the women's uh, running movement is, is not 
about running at all anymore. It's a social revolution. I mean, so many women who have begun running um, have found it as a salvation and a way of empowerment and changing their lives in very, 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 very positive ways to the point where I've even um, started a uh, nonprofit called 261 Fearless, which is about just that. It's not about competition. It's not necessarily about getting faster or running a marathon for sure. It's about the community of women running and how they can overcome their fearlessness. I mean, every woman in the world remembers how hard it was to take the first step. And um, all over the world, there are women who don't have any opportunities whatsoever to take that first step. And uh, it's kind of up to us to make that happen for them. That's what we're trying to do with 261 Fearless. This, This organization is global already. We're in 12 countries, five continents, and we're only four years old. So um, but everybody can make those change. You know, I think, I think we all can contribute in amazing ways. So for you as a, as a runner, what does it mean to you to, to embrace your fear? How has that helped guide you through your journey? You know, that's a good question because running has helped me overcome my fears in every way. It is a transformational experience. And for me, I was lucky enough to start running at age 12, and that was also because of fear. You know, I wanted to be accepted and attractive when I went into high school, and I was just a skinny little speckled kid. And my dad saw that, and he said, "Listen, um, you don't want to be a cheerleader because that's what I said I wanted to be." He said, <laughs> "He said cheerleaders cheer for other people. You want people to cheer for you. That life is to participate, not to spectate." And he encouraged me to go out and start running every day. Um, He said, do a mile a day and you'll make the field hockey team in your high school, which is a new sport. I don't know anything about it, but it's about running. Anyway, he showed me how to to measure off the yard and I went out and I ran this mile every single day. And I made the team and I continued to play sports and la la, all that. But the biggest thing was that the mile a day gave me a sense of empowerment and armor, if you will, like a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. That was so important. And, and what a way for a kid who is nervous and, and um, going into a big high school for the first time. I mean, I was only 12 years old and, you know, I had skipped a year of school. I, I uh, started, you know, so, I mean, I was prepubescent and I was in, in uh, uh, a high school with, with 18 year olds, you know, <laughs> so it was a big deal. So, so to have that overcoming that sense of fear was terrific. And of course, then when I ran the Boston Marathon for the first time in 1967, that was eight years later, and I was still only 20. But when I got attacked in the race by Jock Semple, you know, the infamous incident, oh, yeah. which we, I know you're what mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about, um, I, I made the determination no matter what, I was going to finish the race, even on my hands and my knees if I have to. And, and the, the reason I had the courage to do that was because I had been running for eight years. So I, I just feel that if all over the world, women especially, if they can embrace this easy, cheap, convenient, and accessible means of empowerment and fitness and good health, um, it can change a lot of lives. It already has. We, we now see in the United States, 50% of all participating runners are women. So it's really, it's really phenomenal, that change. And I think that's so powerful. And one of the things that... Um you know, you're in a different situation where here in the U.S., uh, you're in New Zealand now, you know, all of our races were canceled. Um, everybody had these goals going into the, the year. But what most of us have discovered is that running can happen on an individual level. And, you know, 
even a small part, it's I've still been able to reach my goals because they're not dependent on anybody else. And I would imagine for a lot of the things that you're doing with your organization is that it, it helps uh, women learn that empowerment that, you know, they can do anything and, and it's not dependent on anybody else. And, and, you know, maybe you could speak to that of, of how self-empowering it is for the individual, uh, the sport of running. Absolutely. Totally. And, and even, and especially in this time of COVID-19, we have realized that. And an interesting thing that's happened with um, 261 Fearless, my nonprofit, is this, which is having to go virtual. And certainly here in New Zealand, even though we're COVID free now and the envy of the world, uh, we had a very, very severe lockdown and our borders, in fact, are still sealed here. But we are back to normal and having races. But this is brand new for us. But during that time, our uh, nonprofit realized that we also had a gift of going virtual because we could talk to each other around the world. So we began, instead of having meet runs on Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings or whenever we normally went out and saw our club, um, for me, Kingston, New York, and for my friend, Vienna, Austria, for instance, we all got online and worked out together um, at different times, You know, scheduled these workouts at different times so that we could appeal to global time zones. But I got to be with friends from Albania, Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, it's just amazing to see them. And each one of them said the same thing. You know, when I'm out running by myself, which I can do, I have my personal sense of empowerment. And then I come in, I still have my community, thanks to the virtual world. So we, we have learned so much technologically, and we've really embraced that hugely. Also, I mean, I don't know if you guys were following the whole thing with the Boston Marathon, how it went virtual and how they put all the um, expo on virtually. They, they, um, and they had all the uh, seminars. Yeah. Boston has. Yeah. I was able to watch some of those. Yeah. 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 It was fantastic. I got to see all the seminars rather than, than only one or two, because we're all racing around in Boston and at the expo and seeing, having meetings and, and the, you know, so the seminar is done and dusted. Now, you can go back and look at it if you didn't get a chance to see it live. So that's been really amazing. Um, and, and, and also the whole virtual running has been a really interesting because we still communicate with through Facebook or, or uh, with the race results or, or getting our bib number through the mail and posting our pictures. That's all been a very, very interesting experience. Do I miss the community? Absolutely. I must say here in New Zealand, when we opened up um, the first big race was the Rotorua Marathon, which is probably New Zealand's most iconic marathon. And up to four days before, they weren't sure they still were going to be able to pull it off because there was this outbreak in Auckland of COVID-19, which they completely contained. But still, we thought, oh, my gosh, maybe we won't be able to do this. But there were 7,000 people there for the Rotorua Marathon and the other uh, races, you know, the 5K, 10K, et cetera. But it was like a freaking festival because people were so excited yeah. about being at a race again. And, you know, it was kind of like we, we didn't hug each other quite, but we sure bumped a lot of elbows. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great. So the community, uh, the community loves its, its um, direct touch, that's for sure. So we're going to have to really look at the sport, aren't we? I mean, 50,000 people in New York with, you know, 2 million spectators and everybody spitting and coughing and sweating and, and touching each other <laughs> yeah. is not exactly hygienic. Um, so we've got to, we may have to figure out our sport a different way a little bit. 
Well, Fundy and I talk about that as well in that uh, the adjustment to the virtual races, and we've seen a couple different versions of it. We don't, I don't think that's going to go away. Even when in-person racing starts to pick up again, there's just aspects to it that, uh, for one, allow community across uh, multiple regions and, and time zones. And also what we found, it was very motivating individually on our practice runs to actually be chipping away at this virtual race. Uh, but without question, we're going to have to readjust what this dynamic is like because it is going to be quite a while before we have that real big rush of an in-person race. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, the first group to do it right, I think, was Comrades in South Africa. And it's a race that's always been on my bucket list since 1966. In fact, it's been on my bucket list and is looking increasingly less likely <laughs> to be able to do it. However, they do have some oldies in there. But anyway, um, but what they did instead of canceling the race and just saying, you know, the, those of you who have registered, you know, we're going to do it virtually. They threw it open to the whole world. And you could do, not, you didn't have to do the whole, whatever it is, 86 miles or whatever, I never can remember. Um, but uh, you could do a half marathon, you could do a 5K, you could, and you got a medal. And I said, geez, this is about the only time I'm going to get a medal from Comrades. I better <laughs> Got to get a medal. But the, <laughs> yeah, but the whole point is, is that it was a massive global outreach. And then, of course, London picked up on that as well. I thought that was amazing. You know, they had 43,000 people running the London Marathon virtually. So at least they're going to recoup some of their financial loss. Uh, although the people I do worry about in this industry, uh, huge numbers. How about the people who, you know, make the bib numbers, the people who have the timing oh, right. equipment, you know, marathon photo, those guys out there taking pictures, the people who make the trophies or the medals, et cetera. So um, there are an awful lot of industries that are suffering greatly. And, and I'd love to figure out a way that, you know, we, we can get them all back on track. And I do love the virtual races, but I'm not going to lie. I miss the sweaty hugs and the, uh, you know, the grossness of the race day when we're all piled in together. And the chocolate well, milk. That's, <laughs> that's us. That's us old, old buddy duddy runners. We, we, we like it down and dirty. That's for sure. <laughs> I would like to expand a little bit on um, your organization and talk a little bit from the perspective of um, countries that are uh, more challenged economically. And when I was younger, I had the opportunity to serve in the Peace Corps. And a lot of times in the countries that, uh, for example, that I was in, huge disparities between uh, gender equality. And I would imagine that with the opening up of the world with the internet and these uh, virtual races, that it's really expanding the opportunity for female runners in, um, you know, less than first world countries or countries where that gender equality is, uh, is not as equal. That's my dream and my challenge. And, um, and it is for, for the whole organization of 261 Fearless. And we are passionate about that because, um, you know, there are, the reality is that most women in the world still live in a fear, fearful situation. Most, most women in the world. That's hard to grasp, but it's true, most. And there is conditions, as you know, as a Peace Corps guy, uh, of you know, social conditioning, religion, rest religious restriction, um, uh, poverty, and, and, and just really, really you know, gender stereotyping to the point where women themselves have come to 
over thousands of years except those stereotypes themselves. That's why it's often very hard to break those bonds. But still they're finding ways to run. And what, what is winning for us is creating a community of letting women know they're not alone out there. I think often when you are in fear, um, you think you're the only person who is in fear. And actually that's another thing, how COVID has helped us because every single person on the planet right now <clears throat> is experiencing this fear from this pandemic. Every person. It's unique in all of history, actually, to imagine that. And, um, and so we have created a community and, and we just show you how to take the first step. And sometimes all you need to know is you've got a friend. So that's really important. And the second component is education. And through the um, internet, um, and this was hard for me to understand when we were first setting up the nonprofit because I'm older and, I, and my team is all, they're at the top of their game. They're all between 42 and 52. So they, they're, they're rocking, you know, and they understand all the technology. And it was explained to me that we can reach these women. I didn't think we could because of the internet. Hello. They've all got, you know, an internet connection. I said, they're poor. They don't have an internet connection. And my, my uh, CEO, Edith, said, Catherine, she said, no matter how poor any woman is, uh, among 10 women, one of them is going to have an internet connection. And that's how, you know, the, the, the Arab Spring happened. And I thought, my God, she's right. So, so the, basically, this has helped us tremendously, especially from the educational, not only community component, but the educational component where, where women now can access our empowerment talks. We have a series now of webinars, which we call Womanars Going. Two, six, That's one, great. Fearless, yeah. fearless forward womanars. Um, and they can, they can tune in and um, get real solid tips from, from our team of experts on uh, careers and uh, embracing fear, making the most of fear, how fear is a good thing, and taking care of your body, whatever, because we've got good medical people too. So I have really high hopes for us uh, in this sphere. I really, really do. And I had always, I remember somebody said, said, what is your dream? And I said, my dream is to actually crack the Mideast. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, I'd just love to get those women out from the burkas and, and into running. And actually it's, it's not because of me, uh, it's because of them and other women, uh, but it trickles down. Um, you know, there are a whole group of women who are called the, the midnight runners and at four in the morning, they're all out there in their burkas running and they have a lot of guys who are running shotgun for them and supporting them. So, I, I, you know, there's some really cool things that are happening. And slowly, slowly, we'll, we'll, we'll break through. So that's an amazing list of things that, that have been put out there. And your, your foundation, your organization is obviously really touching a lot of people. I'm curious to know about the, the personal story shared with you that had the most impact to you about someone saying what you did specifically and how it affected their life. A woman in the Democratic Republic of Congo during covid uh, said that um, they couldn't go out of the house even to run. Uh, and if they did, the kind of the vigilantes who were trying to keep people in their house would rape the women. Um, so it was highly incentivized to stay at home. Um, but but they, they one said, you know, I just ran uh, circles in, in my house and around my, around my house, in my house. Um, and, you know, I just thought of Catherine Switzer, you know, going ahead in the Boston Marathon. Well, to me, they're, they're that was such a such a satisfaction to me, but I mean, I'm thinking what I experienced by being attacked in the Boston Marathon is nothing, nothing compared to what this woman is facing. 
right. in her life in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and these, this another interesting thing about this, the experience with those woman, women was that their relationship to running had always been one of war and persecution, that they only ran to run away from um, people who were trying to kill them. <laughs> um, you know, in, in, in tribal warfare or, or revolutionary, whatever it was. Um, and now to run and have the sense of joy is a whole new sense of feeling. Uh, so I, I just, you know, hear those things, you know, you just shake your head and you say, wow, you know, if I had any influence on anybody, I'm, I'm really excited. But to hear something like that was overwhelming. And that's, I, I think, to echo on some of the things you said before is as we share uh, our own trials and tribulations and our own fears, uh, as you've done throughout your career, that inspires other people. And it actually gives strength because everybody has their own fears and, and, and trials and that the strength we gain from others and their sharing to know that we're not alone actually gives uh, each other strength to, to put one foot in front of the other. It absolutely does. It's that whole feeling you're not alone out there. I mean, I always say, you know, it's, it's very difficult to walk down a dark street late at night alone. But if you're with a group of friends, you don't think twice about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that was touched on in the uh, Human Race documentary, and it was for me the most uh, poignant moment. Nicholas uh, knows I'm a crier. I cry all the time when I'm watching movies. <laughs> he, he flicks me crap. Uh, but when you talked about when you first noticed that uh, women, especially younger women, were using the hashtag 261 or... Uh, you started seeing people having uh, women having 261 tattoos. Um, can you kind of go back in time and tell us a story about when you first noticed that the first time you noticed someone with a 261 tattoo and what that brought about in you? Oh gosh, it, it wasn't so back in time. I mean, we're only talking like five or six years ago here and, and oh, I got the creeps. <laughs> <laughs> I hope in a good way. I I got the creeps. I, I'm thinking, what does this mean? At first, they were people, people were sending me pictures of um, running in a race. And they said, I never thought, particularly women, but a lot from guys, too. Um, I never thought I could run. Um, and I started running. And now I'm running my first marathon tomorrow. And there'd be a picture in their hotel room in New York or something, right? getting their gear together. And they would show their bib number on the front, New York, and on the back, it, they said had 261. It said, I'm wearing 261 because it makes me fear fearless. They kept using that word. So I thought, well, isn't that nice? You know, and I never thought anything, <laughs> about, never thought anything about that bib number. Um, you know, it's just digits. Um, and then they, they just started happening around the world. They, like, somebody from Poland or somebody from Paraguay or somebody from the Basque country or somebody from Chicago. They didn't know each other. And, and it just, <clears throat> it just kind of snowballed. And it was the tattoos that made me um, sit up and notice because if somebody's tattooing your number on, on them, their body, like forever, it means something. And, um, and I didn't know what to do with it. And that's when I talked to Edith Zushman, who is the CEO of 261 Fearless. We were at a press conference and I said this to, to the group and she was a journalist. She came up to me and she said, you know how powerful that is? I said, I don't know if it's powerful, but it, it, it concerns me because it, it's obviously either there's a very weird synchronicity or 
um, something is happening and I don't know what to do with it. And I said, and she said, well, you better do something with it because somebody's going to take it from you. (laughs) And I said, well, like what? She said, well, like a sportswear company, they're going to start making a shoes called 261 or something. And I said, oh my God. She said, right, you better protect it. And I said, but I don't want to start another business. And she said, well, then maybe you should do something else. I said, I'm too old for another revolution. I'm 65. (laughs) (laughs) Little did you know. (laughs) And she said, let's talk. And so we sat down and honestly, we talked for two years. And we argued and argued. She was the one who told me about the internet, right? So, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, it the reality is is that it this it's the story they relate to, because right. everybody in the world has been told that you are not good enough at one time or the other, or somebody shames you, um, or you're too fat, or you're too slow, or you're a girl. Um, or you don't, you're, you're more on the wrong side of the tracks. So you're the wrong race. Okay. We're seeing this all the time. You're the wrong race. You don't count. Um, wrong religion. Don't speak English, whatever it is. Um, and then you go run and you feel fearless. And I said, oh my God, that's it. That's why this is so magic. I mean, running is really magic and transformation. Um, so there I am lined up now for the Boston Marathon 2017, right? Um, the, the happiest day of my life, I've got to tell you. Uh, once I got started running up to that point, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die. But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, I was running shotgun, uh, the woman running shotgun with me, Rosie, um, uh, pasted on a temporary tattoo. We had temp tattoos that said 261 Fearless and, and people had it all on their faces. We had 125 women running that day for 261 Fearless. It act- effectively launched our uh, nonprofit. and um, and. Uh, I said, you know, Rosie, if I get through this race, I'm going to get a real 261 tattoo. She said, yeah, right. And so we did it. And, and, she, and she said, so you're going to go get a real tattoo? And I said, sure am. And she said, right. Believe it when I see it. So I sent her a, a Facebook picture and I, me getting a tattoo. So I've got my own. Awesome. <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, you're, yeah. you're in good company with a, that. I thought it's a cool <laughs> thing at age 71 to treat yourself to a tattoo. Love it. <laughs> Well, uh, I was curious, um, there's a couple things about your, your two, well, you've had multiple marathons, but speaking to your two Boston marathon experiences, uh, first of all, um, aside from being accosted, uh, how is the marathon different today than it was in 67? Oh gosh, it's so different. And actually Boston is a really good example because of how it has morphed, uh, into the, the event that it is today. I've actually run Boston nine times. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So after the the incident one, I waited out two years because I was afraid of Jock Semple attacking me again, and then <laughs> um, and then came back and and then we you know we were getting competitive as women. We really wanted to get better, and we also joined together and got women official in Boston in '72. So that was really important, and Jock had to welcome me into the race, and that's another fun story. But anyway, then to come back 50 years later uh, was was a real, real triumph for me. And in the intervening years, I'd been at Boston every single year for, for 50 years doing, t- I did the broadcast actually, the Boston marathon for 42 consecutive years. So I, I really was in a great position to see how dramatically it had changed. Um, you know, first of all, you know, with, with women, um, they had to recognize us and then they had to really take us seriously. And that was brought on by a negative incident, which was the Rosie Ruiz right. cheating incident. And everybody said, that's a terrible, terrible thing. And I said, well, in a way, it's a good thing because nobody was paying attention to the women before this. And now you're 
you're trying to sort out the, the leaders in the race. I was alongside of um, Jacqueline Garreau in that race on a motorcycle who was doing TV. And so I, I, you know, I had been blindsided too by this other person winning, even though I had gone up, I couldn't find anybody, any other woman. I came back to Jacqueline and probably quite illicitly told her that she was in the lead and she, she just held her form. She was going to win. Then I went on up to, to greet her at the finish line and was greeted by Rosie Ruiz. So, so anyway, that had to straighten out not only um, the Rosie Ruiz and the women's scoring system, it had to really start, Boston had to smarten up uh, and, and get course, the course organized. Because after the first 10 guys came in, it was chaos. The streets were filled with people. You just couldn't, you just couldn't even get through the crowds. So crowd control was installed and then uh, accurate course measurement took place um, for years up until 1980. They didn't even have water stations or adequate toilets. Um, the timing was still done. The split times are still at the, at the train stations. So instead of, you know, um, by mile or by kilometer, when you, when you got to, uh, instead of 10K, it was like um, 6.783 miles, which is where the Framingham train station is. Well, that's really great when you're trying to, you can't even do the math in your head anyway, when you, right. <laughs> and then, um, and then of course the advent of prize money. Uh, the advent of the Africans, which was terrific. I mean, I remember when uh, Ibrahim Hussein, yeah, was the first uh, uh, black person to win the Boston Marathon, Kenyan, um, and then the influx of the other Africans, and then the progressively faster, faster times and the chasing of world records. Um, uh, again, the evolution of women, and then uh, having fought so long to get women official in the Boston Marathon and to be a part of the race, we then uh, asked if we could have a separate start because the women were so competitive and so good that the, the media couldn't cover them well because they were all mixed up with the guys and the women themselves as uh, elite runners couldn't find each other in the race sometimes. You know, you could, if you got ahead, you could get, get lost in a group of guys and the second place woman couldn't find the first place one, that kind of stuff. So now we have a separate start for women. And then of course, then the advent of the wheelchair athletes, uh, which now at first everybody thought, oh, why are we doing this? And now people are very sensitive to how incredibly important that addition is for the race and, and how deserving they are. So um, progress, progress, progress again and again to, to, to watch this. Um, of course, the thing that, one of the things I'm most proud about of uh, my work with women runners is actually uh, leading the charge to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. And I was inspired by Boston uh, to do that because in 72, when women were made official, then um, Fred Lebo and Nina Cusick and I organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park in New York City. Um, and we were scared to death. It was, um, it was 10K, one lap around the park. Uh, we didn't think anybody would come. A sponsor wanted to do this. We, we needed the money. <laughs> and... <laughs> Boy, we sent out thousands of entry forms everywhere and we got 78 women. That was huge. And it was, it really was world news, you know, that there was 78 women in one place who could actually run six miles. Oh my God. <laughs> so easy um, that inspired me to say, Hey, you know, there are millions of women out there who can run and want to run. They don't know it yet. If you create the opportunity, they'll come, you know, it's like feel the dreams, build it and they'll come. And um, 
I began organizing races and then I went to Avon, the cosmetics company, uh, gave them a sponsorship proposal to uh, do a global series of women's races. I didn't think for a moment that they were going to even read the proposal, but they actually hired me. Um, it was a breathtaking moment. And um, we began a, a, to organize a global series because they were a big multinational company. And eventually we had um, over 400 races in 27 countries for a million women. And we could take the data and statistics from those events and present it to the IOC. And the IOC could no longer say we didn't have the international representation or the numbers or the talent. So it, that, that was the breakthrough. And we got the vote for the women's marathon. Uh, for 1984 in an extraordinary meeting in 1981. So the, when, when we watched Joan Benoit come into that stadium, you know, in 1984, it was a game, totally game-changing moment for men and women. It was, it, to me, it was as important as giving women the right to vote because it was like the physical equivalent of the social and cultural acceptance of, uh, and intellectual acceptance of women in 1920. So it, that that to me was the game changer, but it, but you think you've made a game change, and, and then it then it isn't really a game change because you look around and that was great for women who were going to run marathons, but what about women who still were in an isolated place and couldn't put one foot in front of the other or weren't allowed to? So we had to create those opportunities, and from that, of course, came two six one fearless. So it's an ongoing story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just like to acknowledge my privilege right now because I had no idea that the Olympic marathon for women wasn't even available till 84. I mean, ah, if you'd you asked go. me to, if I, if you'd asked me to guess, I, I know I, I, I would have guessed in the seventies. Yeah. We were both in high school in 84 and I don't um, remember it. Yeah. We would have watched that Olympics and I had no idea that was the first uh, marathon for women. And uh, so I just want to thank you for all of the work that you've done. And for people that are listening the uh, Boston Marathon that you were talking about, 13,500 women ran it, uh, which is awesome. Oh, uh, in 87? It was unbelievable. It, and it was 49% women, 51% men. So we can call it 50-50 on that. So yeah. how amazing it was by my 50th anniversary, we were really 50-50. And, and the crowd, oh my God, the crowd was just unbelievable. Everybody on, in the, on the sidelines all the way from... Hopkinton to Boston knew the story and they were holding up big signs, go 261, go Catherine, go women's equality. It was um, it's such a change from, you know, a, a couple of spectators in 67. One guy, I remember stepping out on the road and shouting at me, you should be home making dinner for your husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know that I am on board for cooking dinner tonight at our household. Then. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, very true. I would also like to point out that uh, 50% of the runner, race runners were women in uh, 2017. Uh, that's a long list of female runners up to that point. And you are literally uh, number one on that list. I think that's pretty amazing. No, I'm not number one, actually. I'm the number one for wearing a bib, uh, registered runners. But don't forget Roberta Gibb actually ran in 1966 she jumped out of the bushes and ran so she is the first woman awesome. to run the boston marathon. Oh. i i am the first woman to officially register and run the boston marathon and that's what created that incident and essentially broke the gender barrier and created the controversy but yeah i mean if you go to boston uh and you look at the 
engraving in Copley Square, um, she's she's there as the first woman to to run the Boston Marathon, nineteen sixty. Awesome. So that's good. Yeah. I yeah. would love to hear uh, you talk about one of the things that I've been noticing um, with ultra runs, uh, for example, like, you know, wonderful runners like Courtney DeWalter, is that uh, in these ultra runs, a lot of women are on parity with the men, um, you know, sometimes finishing ahead of the first place men. And I'd love to hear you talk about that in terms of men's and women's times getting even closer in the, in the marathons also. Yeah, that's a, it's it's wonderful. Um, my coach and I discovered that in the training run we did before the Boston Marathon in 1967 because we went out to run. He told me he would take me to Boston if, if I could prove that I could do the distance. So we went out and ran uh, 26 miles one day, and um, I said I don't think we've run long enough. And he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "I just I just don't think he's because he kept saying you look so good. You're like I can't believe it. You look great." I said, let's run another five miles. When we ran the, the next five miles after that, kept going, okay? We, so 31 miles. He lost consciousness in the last mile. He was weaving <laughs> all over the road and, and passed out at the end of the workout. And then came two, and the first thing he said was, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. So look, this is something we do know. Physiologically, it's true. Women have more endurance and stamina than men uh, and more flexibility and more balance. We do not have the speed, the power, and the strength. Olympic sport, most of the sport we've only known ever since the beginning of time, has always been about speed, power, and strength. So right. now we're seeing the sport is changing, um, and it's a matter of opportunity. It's a matter of uh, also women being able to control their biological destiny. You know, we have birth control now. Um, we have better nutrition. We have better medicine. We have better everything, uh, at leisure time and money. To, these are things that we didn't even have 50 years ago, you know? So, so that's what is making it the huge difference. It, and also, it's not that one athlete is actually better than the other. They're different. I actually think one of the great futures for running could be a, a tremendous relay. Here in New Zealand, we have these grand traverse runs that, that go on for like six days. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the guys are leading the team for the first few days. And then the women always bring the team home. And they, they will tell you that the women bring the team home because toward the end, the guys can't read the compass anymore. And the women can. I mean, those are, it's things like that. So what differences are we just beginning to understand that, that bear out so that, that you know, we can use men's speed, power, and strength, and then women's endurance, stamina, um, and, and and prevention against cold. And we, I mean, we have a fuel source, uh, fat. We, women have more fat. Um, and that's a, a huge advantage, you know, when, in, in cold for channel swimming, for instance, um, and for, for ultra races. Even these, these women who are winning, who are super skinny, still have better fat utilization. So, you know, I'm, I'm no scientist. I just know from, from what I'm seeing and, and believing, but I, I think this is going to be a huge, huge, trend for the future as sport begins to not change so much as incorporate new things. Yeah. I'm and super I, excited about it. Yeah. It, it could be very exciting. Uh, see, you guys don't remember this, but I do. I can remember when it's not quite true, but it's an easy story that the triathlon was a barroom bet between three hunky guys in Hawaii. Um, you know, that where, where the, the cyclists said, oh, come on, you know, cycling's the toughest. The swimmers said, oh, come on, ocean swim. And the runners said nothing beats a marathon. So they put them all together. Well, 
at the first, it was the craziest event ever imagined, but now it's an Olympic sport. So yeah. what, what, what we may be seeing is a whole change in, in sports as we know it. I mean, I think it's very, very exciting and very positive for not, not only for women, because it increases their opportunities and their nat- natural, takes advantage of their natural capacity, but for men and women together doing, doing things, you know, where we each have our own unique abilities that we can bring to the game. I think that's very exciting. Yeah. And I'm not surprised that uh, running in particular is, is kind of leading the charge with that. It is such a personal experience and yet it's also very universal in what it means as a, a human to run. I mean, that's just in our DNA to be able to do that. And yet every time we go out, it's, it's such an individual uh, challenge that you just, you have to put yourself through. I'm actually really emotional about that, of what you just said. The, to me, running has always led, you know, sports as the, as the charge. And, and, you know, I, I often think of the time, um, 2017, when I ran the New York City Marathon again, it was 43 years after I actually won the race. And I'd been doing TV commentary through the streets of New York, but I'd never run the race in through the streets because when I won, it was in Central Park. So here I, you know, four days before the race, there was a terrorist attack in New York where the um, guy drove his truck into these cyclists and runners on the West Side Highway and killed people. And we thought, oh, my God, they're going to cancel the race. Um, And my phone just rang like and emails pouring and you can't run. That's dangerous. They're going to be terrorists. And I said, are you kidding? I'm going to be there with 50,000 people. I'm going to probably run the whole way. You know how you get stuck in with with people who are around you. A guy on my left is a, a different race for me, doesn't speak English. And the woman on the right is, is kind of gender ambiguous. She doesn't speak English either. But I said, we're going to run the whole way together. We're going to motivate each other. And at the end, we're going to hug each other, all sweating and stinking. And it has nothing to do with sex or violence. I mean, that's it's all about being inclusive, e- egalitarian, welcoming, fair. Um, and diverse. So uh, I just can't think of, of anything that is better than what running brings to the whole world position. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I know that we're keeping you a little bit longer than planned. I'd like to ask, uh, what is your switching gears? What's your uh, most recent full marathon time that you've ran? Ah, uh, London. 2018, 444. 444. So uh, Nicholas uh, just flipped me off in the background <laughs> because um, I recently I've been trying to talk him into running an, another full marathon. I've yet to run one and he's been saying no. Um, but the fact that uh, you beat him most recently um, in your recent marathons uh, with to his personal best is really what has been motivating him. So I had to get that question. <laughs> I, I, I knew exactly where he, he was going with that. Uh, hey, you know, what's really cool though about running. Um, it's never too late to start. So it's true. always too late. It's always too early to quit. <clears throat> but it's never too late to start. That's a wonderful quote from Wally Bortz, who is one of the, the best um, gerontologists out there. He's a great guy. You should talk to him. He's a big deal runner and he's in Stanford. Um, Love that. Uh, yeah, cool. He he's really old. I mean, he's like eighty five now. Uh, so, um, but I I got back into marathon running 
uh, after a 32 year break from marathoning. I mean, I'd been running all the time, but I, I had a 32 year break because I said, listen, you know, after running a 251 in, in Boston, after winning New York, I mean, I'm never going to do that again. It's time to start paying back and creating events. And I was working really hard on this, getting the marathon and the women, uh, marathon in the Olympic Games. Anyway, um, uh, but I started, it was, I was signing copies of my book at, at some event. And these women who were like 65 and 70 were coming up to me and saying, oh, I've heard about you. Um, you know, you, you know, I just have been only started running like three or four years ago. Um, but I'm so excited. It's changed my life. And uh, next week I'm running up and down Pikes Peak. And then a group of us are going off to um, Tokyo. And then another group of us are going off to run Comrades. And I really got so jealous. I said, I wonder if I could get it back. And I said to my husband, Roger, I said, I wonder if I could get it back to do a marathon. He said, well, why would you want to do that after all your success? And I said, well, I'm physiologically curious. You know, the reason they're doing well is because they may be old, but they've got new legs. But if I'm old and I'm <laughs> old legs, can I do it? And I trained up and by golly, you know, I, I, that marathon in Boston was only uh, 24 minutes slower than I ran when I was 20. So, it, you know, it's, it's there. You can, you can at any age train up and, and do this. All things being equal, you know, I'm grateful for my health. I had my share of injuries. I'm just coming out of a, a year of sore Achilles finally now. Um, but, but, you know, basically I'm really, really lucky. And I think that most people underestimate their capabilities. And I think that's one of the reasons that we actually started the podcast is it, we surprise ourselves. All of us as runners, we can surprise ourselves. Um, all of us in our running group, we've got our personal best uh, half marathons this year in our early 50s. And, you know, you, we can change our, uh, what we're shooting for, but let's say we're in our 60s or 70s. We can be like, oh, I, I want to get my best marathon time in my 60s. I want to get my new 60s PR or my 70s PR. And that's part of the fun of it. Oh, it really is. I mean, runners are the only people that can't wait to get older. <laughs> <laughs> Just to show the young people what's up. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, well, we want to get to that new age group and we want to get to it healthy because we want to, you know, we want to see how well we can do against our compatriots. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. And and just since you brought it up, I'll just point out that uh, I'm the older and the faster runner. Between, between <laughs> I knew he would get that in. <laughs> you had to get that in. Oh, right? of course I did. Uh, so I got a kind of a, a quirky little question. Can you imagine running in those old school gray sweats again, like you did in 67? Oh, no, 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 no. You got to understand that up until 2018, the weather in the Boston Marathon in 67 was the worst in history. It was headwind, sleet, about 34 degrees. So it came down with great huge snowflakes and sleet, um, windy, you know, headwind the whole way. Um, and when it got on you, it was, it, it, uh, it didn't freeze. It, it soaked your skin. You just froze. Everybody wore everything they owned. And um, I had on a really cute shorts and top. I really wanted to show off. I said, there's no way. Um, <laughs> I'm going to die here and I'm going to die here. And so um, gloves, hats, they were wearing everything. They didn't have plastic bags in those days, but they were wearing those big nylon windbreakers. And if you look at the, the a spread of pictures, you'll see everybody in, in sweats. Um, I had to ditch the pants after 10 Ks because they got so wet that they were dragging me down and were no longer warm. But um, I kept the sweatshirt on the whole way. I lost 
one of my gloves in the confrontation with Jock Semple. And I, it, I was miserable the whole way. It was really, really oh, wicked. Geez. So uh, side question, um, while you're much faster than me, one thing that we do have in common is we were both literature majors in college. Yeah, I was, I was English and journalism. Okay, so you're going to ask me my favorite book. Your favorite <laughs> running book that's not yours, because I know yours is great. Oh, my favorite running book is not mine. No doubt. It's When Running Made History by Roger Robinson. Incredible book. Absolutely incredible book. Okay, well, it's going next on my list. And yeah, we'll have to check that out. How about favorite non-running book? Middle March, George Eliot. Nice. I know we've kept you over time. Uh, we can't thank you enough for all your time and all your inspiration and all the work that you're putting in just to make this world a better place. Thank you so much. Just a tag. George Eliot was a woman. Yes. <laughs> she wrote under a pseudonym <laughs> because nobody would buy a book by a woman. So and true. It turns out the greatest literary masterpiece in the world. <laughs> That's awesome. I also like to point out one of the uh, boys' favorite uh, books of our generation in junior high, The Outsiders, was also written by a woman. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was Great talking to you guys. You keep doing a good job. And, um, and thank you very much also for your support of 261 Fearless. If people want to join us, just to go 261fearless.org um, and join a global movement. We'd love to have you. We'd love everybody to join. Yes, and thank you for coming in today. It was fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Keep doing the wonderful work you're doing for um, all of the women all over the world. And, you know, in one small part, if we can help uh, get more people into your organization, we're going to do everything we can to help. Thank you both so much. So if that conversation didn't motivate you to go out and not just be a runner or a better runner, but more importantly, a better person, I don't, I don't know what you got inside. I don't, I want to go for a run right now. I missed, I, oh, exactly. I, it's so funny. You know, each of these conversations that we have, that's what they make me want to do is to yeah. go out and, and, and run. And I think that, uh, it just emphasizes again, why this is such a powerful experience for people that running really is a, a human thing and, and it, it brings us together. Uh, there was a question I, I wanted to ask, and we just didn't quite get to it, which was about how running breaks us down and builds us back up and what that does to you as, as a person, what that does um, when you go through those motions with your community. I mean, it's just such an empowering thing. Yeah. And I think um, we feel that a lot, especially when uh, other people start running and when you are the person that that brings that person into your community and get them running and they get to that point where they are being able to do five and six miles, seven miles and feel good at the paces, you're able to see that person break everything down and build it back up. And you've been through that yourself, sometimes multiple times if you yeah. dealt with injuries and how empowering that is to yourself and how wonderful that is to see in another person. For me, what I thought, what I, what I take away from this isn't just the running aspect of it, but this was something that formulated the rest of her life. And I, she didn't go into the Boston Marathon uh, that day thinking that this was going to set her path, but it did. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that we all have to learn, whether it's running or not, that you, you've got to be ready when that 
moment strikes to be able to grab a hold and go forward with what you think is the right thing to do. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Old Crazy Runners. Take a moment to rate and review the podcast and always share it with your friends so they can join in with all of us for these great episodes. And be sure to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners podcast, Strava Run Club, because that's where all us old crazies hang out. It's where we encourage each other to keep getting out there, to keep putting in the miles. And keep being old crazy runners.